Hello everyone and welcome to the Investigate Europe podcast where we speak with our cross-border team of journalists about their recent investigations at work. My name is Sindhuri Nandakumar. Today we're going to delve into the heart of IE's brand new investigation which is called Silent Death: Europe's Deep-Rooted Pesticide Problem and Biodiversity Crisis. If I were to sum up this months-long research done by the team, it is this: Europe is yet to wake up to its fatal dependency. Today, over 400 different active pesticide substances are approved in the EU. Global pesticide sales have doubled in the last 20 years, and the European market for agricultural pesticides is one of the largest in the world. All of this understandably paints a very bleak picture for the state of our environment, and the consequences are devastating. We're already witnessing a significant loss in biodiversity including plants, birds and insects. And even if farmers are keen to use alternatives, these might not be accessible or affordable to them. So what is the European Union doing about it and what can we expect from the future? The lead researcher of this investigation, Harald Schumann, who's a founding member of IE based in Berlin, joins me to discuss the findings. Hi Harald, welcome to the show. Hi Sindhu. So Harald, I want to start with the most basic question, which is why this investigation? How did you and the team decide that you wanted to look into pesticides and the biodiversity crisis? Because I know that you particularly pushed for this. Yes, actually it was me who who had the idea at first and the main reason I have to admit is I was scared by this news about the dramatic loss of insects. you know insects are the major animal population on this planet and they are everywhere and suddenly there there were reports in the media that the insect population in 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 some areas in germany i think in 15 years dropped by more than 60% and so on and 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 i was i was simply concerned yeah because you know this is and at the same time i had the feeling this is an environmental catastrophe in the making in front of our eyes which is completely underreported of course there were a lot of scientific reports but it was not made the connection to the day to day life of everybody um and then of course then came the global biodiversity report in parallel to this famous climate reports yeah ipcc and so on and these scientists wrote this belongs in the same category as climate change uh, but when you compare the reporting i thought we have to do something about it and then the 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 eu commission came up with a proposal and so i said let's go for it and um, this will be as big as climate change so it's only a matter of time when we have to deal with it better earlier than later that's it yeah and it honestly feels so urgent because the findings that you and the team present is very they are very shocking and the science is alarming as you say Can you um for someone who might not be familiar with the investigation explain the most important takeaways from this cross-border research? The most important takeaway from from this research is that the farmers are deeply caught in sort of a locking. They 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 are dependent on this but 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 they do not know how to escape even if they are aware that what they are doing is not not good for for the environment for the future of their own kids and so on this was my major surprise i would have expected that many of them do not care but that's not definitely not true if if they are farming on their own land most of them are, are aware that there is a problem the second big takeaway or yeah it's a, it's a very nasty and and sad one is 
the power of organized chemical industry and big farmers organizations. They, they have so much power in our societies here in Europe, which is in no relation to their actually importance, economic importance or, or whatever. But they, they more or less, they, they have the nearly all of the conservative parties, their allies. And, and there is no public discussion about this, this alliance between the chemical industry, the seed industry, which often is in the same hands, then these so-called uh, farmers associations who always have members and representatives of the chemical industries in their boards or in their subsidiaries and so on. So they are very much intertwined. It's, it's one block. And what surprised me the most is that these people who represent these interests are completely cynical. They really don't care about about the consequences of, of, of their products, um, and they 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 just put it push it away. And it reminds me very much to what the fossil industry did in the 90s when when well when the global discussion about climate change climate change had already begun. You remember the Rio conference and so on. And back then, the fossil industry did everything they could to postpone to downplay, to water down any proposal and to make the people believe this is a far away risk and we can we can go on for several decades. Yeah. And now we live in this mess, you know, now climate change has arrived. If we would have started in the 90s, we could have avoided so much. And the same thing is with this biodiversity loss. If we would start right now, we could avoid a major catastrophe, but we have to start now. This is my major learning. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, it reminds me of the quote that you use in the, the investigation of Commission Vice President Franz Timmermans, who calls it the agro-industrial complex that's so powerful in Brussels. And if we were to kind of look at a bit more towards the solution side of thing, what is the EU doing? I mean, I know you wrote about the EU Commission presenting a law that proposed halving the use of pesticides by 2030. Is this a realistic plan? Will it be reached? I mean, is it something that we can cling on to with hope? Um, yes and no. <laughs> okay. For the first part, the good news is that now, and this is a big difference to 10 years ago, large parts of the EU Commission, our central authority here in Europe, they are aware of the crisis and they really want to change something and to do something. But confronted with this, this lobby power uh, in, in, in alliance with the conservative parties, they only can do it step by step and piece by piece. And it is to be awaited that this, this general goal to reduce pesticide use in the EU by 50% until 2030 maybe could be achieved but it will not achieve the protection of biodiversity which we need because a 50% reduction overall, of course it is doable. Yeah, This is not the problem. The problem is that only a reduction of 50% does not really help. For example, we talked to an, to an ecologist who cares about the biodiversity in, in waters, in rivers, creeks and lakes. And he said, for these organisms, a 50% reduction will, will change nothing. They have to protect it in full from these, from these poisons. And I talked to an agronomist who, who deals with this question since more than two decades. And he said, the, the major aim should be to get as much agricultural landscape completely free of pesticides and then let the more complicated cases, uh, for example, uh, fruits, apple orchards, um, vegetables, uh, 
in particular wine yards, there it takes many years yeah, to reduce pesticide use. So this will take some time, while at the same time, we could get rid of the use of herbicides and glyphosate in two years if we only wanted. We only would have to change the economic incentives. Yeah, You know, herbicides are not used because the farmers cannot, uh, do not know how to fight weeds. Yeah. The problem is herbicides are a rationalization measure. It saves them a lot of um, work hours and machine hours. If you put glyphosate on the field, it kills everything which is green. It's as simple as that. And then when you start seeding your grain or your maize or whatever, or your potatoes, uh, two weeks after having killed everything, uh, then you save a lot of time uh, to fight the wheat. Yeah? The easy thing would be, to pay the farmers not per hectare or per acre, but to pay them for the actual labor hours they have to invest. But by this, we would have to change the system. And this is the issue that the current commission, they are aware that we have a wrong system, but they have not enough power to convince the majority of the member states and of the parliament to change the whole system. So there's a good news and a bad news at the same time in, in this. Yeah, this makes it so complicated. But on the other hand, pressure will, will increase by, by the months, by the day, yeah? because uh, the scientific data coming in about loss of biodiversity is extreme. You know? For example, I was, really, I was really shocked when I was told that 60% of all field birds population in Europe has been lost over the last 50, 15 years. 60%. Maybe the older ones among the audience remember that in a long time ago, in 62, a biologist has written, an American biologist has written this famous report, um, uh, Silent Spring. And you know, for large parts of agricultural landscapes in Europe, Silent Spring is already here. There are no more bird voices to be heard. And wow, this is scary. We have to we have to do something about it. It, it, it. it sounds more like an activist than 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 a journalist. But when it comes to such things which really threaten the future of us all, how you can how you can stay neutral? It's 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 impossible. And yeah, and I think for our audiences, it, just to mention that the Silent Spring author is Rachel Carson that you're referring to, and it it is also ominous the way in which her words are unfolding many years later. And it seems to me like what we're looking at from a farming point of view is is a paradigm shift, right? It's like if you if we need to get rid of all these harmful substances, then you need to spend time, you need to rethink how you're approaching farming, and that almost needs to come from a systemic structural level, which is where the EU kind of steps in. But I also know that you and a number of uh, colleagues spoke with farmers while you did your field research. And what's the, what's the pulse on the ground, literally? What are they thinking? How are they approaching this? Are they ready for change? I think the majority is, well, we, we could not do an empiric research, so it's, it's more anecdotal evidence. But uh, since this anecdotal evidence has been confirmed across the, the 10 countries where we did it, I think it's more or less representative. And uh, nearly all of them said, we know this is a problem. We, we, we have already started trying to reduce it. And it's for us, it's just a matter of, of the economics, of economic survival for my company. For example, I met two farmers who are very experienced, who have a lot of land. They have 750 hectares. This is quite a lot, at least for German farms. They have reduced pesticide use by 25% voluntarily without any 
external pressure, planted hatches and uh, flower fields and so on in, in order to increase uh, the thing. But what they did not do is to change crop rotation. And not only to plant uh, wheat or rye and rapeseed, yeah, potatoes in a row, yeah, but to have four or five other plants or crops in between. And this they did not do because yeah, nobody paid them for that. And they say we cannot afford. So we do our very best, but to reduce further, we, we need another form of income. And this is the issue. Um, and it has been confirmed more or less across the EU from Spain to Poland. It's all over the place the same problem. And the major problem here is farmers are paid only for volume produced independent of the harm they produce. And this, in, you know, and you have to bear in mind, in Europe, two-thirds of all grain production is not for feeding humans, it's for feeding animals. Two-thirds. So when they say, well, we will, we will lose, let's say, 10 to 15% of yield if we decrease pesticide use further, you could easily answer, so what? If we decrease meat consumption by 5 to 10%, which actually would, would help the, the general health of the population if they eat less, less meat. Only by this, yeah, we could save so much grain. We have not a pro problem in, 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 in too little production. We have a pro problem with overproduction and misuse of the grain produced. But again, this is a systemic question and it takes quite some time. The good news here is that the Greens, the Green parties and their voters are on the rise in Europe and they are very aware. For example, our German agriculture minister is actually a vegetarian. <laughs> and, and, and for him, in his culture, in his context, this is a usual thing. He does not preach to everybody to become a vegetarian, but for him it's easy to communicate and, and he has much more followers, growing number of followers among the young who realize to eat meat every day is nonsense, it's, it's anti-ecological, it, it destroys nature, and we could approve this. So the good news is there is, there is space of maneuver. Uh, the energy question, it's much more complicated in a certain way because it's really difficult to, to reduce the, the use of, of electricity, for example, yeah? while at the same time we, we, we do the digitalization of, of, all, of all our production. There is ever more electricity use, not less. But for meat, it's easy to be done. So the goals are achievable. We only have to convince more people. And if we are lucky, it, it takes us only 10 years to arrive to the goals which the, the EU Commission has uh, declared. Okay, so and I will come back to this uh, question about lifestyle because I think that's important at the individual level. But I, before that, I want to ask you, I understand that the role, the, the war in Ukraine is playing a role in all of this. And can you tell us what that actually is? Yeah, but it, it, it's playing a role due to the powerful propaganda machine of this agrochemical complex. Of course, the, the war in the Ukraine means that around 15% of the global grain harvest is blocked from exporting it to Africa and somewhere else. So there is a real lack of grain on the global market. And for this, this powerful agro lobby and chemical industry lobby they turned this in an argument, oh, we cannot risk to loss yield in, on, on European fields. We have to produce as much as possible, whatever the cost is. They even came, came up with a proposal and they have got a majority among the member states to cultivate now fallow land, which was 
set aside protection of biodiversity of plants and insects and so on to cultivate it fully with uh, fertilizer with synthetic fertilizer and pesticides in order to increase the the the, the grain production in the European Union and to compensate for the loss in the Ukraine. Yeah? And I call this cynic because if they would mean it serious, they would say, we want to help the Africans to get better prices, cheaper grain. Let's reduce our meat consumption. Then the overproduction will automatically lead to, to a decline in prices. But this is not what they say. Yeah? What they say is postpone the, 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 the change in the system and let's continue as do. And even if we do what they, what they have proposed, yeah, the maximum which could be achieved is an increase in grain production on, in the European Union by 4%, which for transformed in, on the global market is an additional offer of grain on the global market of 0.14%. This will do nothing for reducing the prices for African importers. It's, it's just cynical. And, and what makes me really sad is that at least in the first wave of being shocked by the the loss of the Ukrainian harvest, um, they came through with it. The good thing here, again, is more than 600 leading European scientists have protested against this nonsense. So um, the commissioner in charge, uh, Franz Timmermans, but also Kyriakis, uh, the health commissioner and so on, they always complain science is on our side and this is just lobby tactics. So my, my, my hope is that they have won the first wave, but in the second trial, the, the agro-lobby will lose. And there are good chances for this, I think. Provided we and the other media continue to report and to, to help hold up uh, the pressure. And hold them accountable, yeah. And um, hopefully we, this is... Um... This turns into a positive question, but um, and I think we can end on that note. But one of your sources, um, the entomologist Joseph Setele, he predicted that by continuing with our current agricultural system, we are ultimately, quote, putting the food security of the entire human race at risk, end quote. This is a very bleak forecast, but you have written in the investigation also about citizen initiatives and the role of the individual. So for someone listening to this who's feeling extremely frustrated by everything you've outlined and maybe even helpless, what can they do? What can an individual do? Well, of course, an individual alone can do never anything as long as there is no political uh, pressure and political change. Yeah, Sorry to say that, but it's politics. It's not individual behavior. But what you can do is, first of all, you can sign the petitions which are on, on, on the way. For example, the newest petition already has collected 1.2 million signatures across the EU. And um, this initiative, which is an alliance of over 200 organizations from all over Europe, um, they will, will force the European Parliament to hold another hearing with them and then the EU Commission will have to answer on this. And the EU Commission, this is the big difference to former initiatives, is they are looking forward to this. Yeah, They cheer that this initiative uh, happens, um, and they, they prove that this putting political pressure actually helps. Um, and the second thing is what people can do is talk to your politicians. You know, you have a, you have a, a local representative, uh, an elected representative for the European Parliament, Meet them. Meet them and ask them, what are you doing on this? Take a closer look at what would we have reported, and then you will find out that there was recently 
um, a major um, motion being voted in the European Parliament, which took side with this agrochemical complex. Find out how your representative has voted and then ask them, ask him or her, why did you vote in favor of this nonsense? The whole science is against you. What made you put your vote on the wrong side? This helps. I, I know it. I know really I have this personal experience and I know it. Nothing moves a politician more than the direct contact with a critical voter who is better informed than him or her. This is how political change can be engineered. So educate yourself and hold your elected officials to account. And talk to them. Talk to them. Yeah, go. You know, they have regularly hours where you can just write an email. I would like to meet you. And then you will get an appointment and then go there. It helps. Yes. Great. On that note, thank you very much, Harold. Um, I would encourage our listeners to read more about the investigation on our website at investigate-europe.eu. Subscribe to the newsletter. There's lots of material on the silent death investigation about pesticides. And Harold, thanks. And hopefully we have some positive news to chat about in the future. Thanks to the reporting and all the work that's happening on this topic. Thank you for this podcast. Thank you.